Well, Junko Tabi would be one of the most revered mountaineers of all time. She came from poor Japanese origins, yet she's ascended Mount Fuji and the Matterhorn of the Swiss Alps. She's climbed the seven summits. Each of the seven continents has its point of highest elevation. She stood atop each of them. This includes Mount Everest, of course, one of the world's tallest mountains. While in camp on May 4th, 1975, an avalanche struck. Junko survived, recuperating at her camp for two days, and then kept going. Twelve days later, she reached the peak of Everest, and she witnessed a sight that few have ever seen. The view from atop Everest. See, Junko Tabi loved to climb mountains, and she lived for the mountaintop experience. Well, I believe she would tell you that there's something special about that, about standing atop the mountain and seeing the view, about remaining on top of the mountain, the feeling, the views, incredible. I think we can identify with that experience as we live our lives. Do not our lives also consist of mountaintops and valleys? We'd much prefer the the heights to the depths. There's no doubt about that. Well, in Matthew chapter 17 this morning, we're going to behold three views of the Christian life. And this is the account of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. There's a few disciples that will go up the mountain with him, and then they will come back down again. Well, as followers of Jesus, you and I do the same. You and I conquer mountains, and we trudge valleys, and we go from the mountaintop, we go down to the valley, and we do it over and over again. The Christian life is one of highs and one of lows. But it's different. It's different than the former life, that old life. Because in the Christian life, we do all of this now with Jesus Christ. He journeys with us atop the mountain, even down into the valley. You and I will share these incredible moments with him. It's almost as though we have a taste of heaven. But we also share very difficult moments where we walk the road that he walked. Our account this morning shows that all of this is part of the normal Christian experience. The mountaintop is a a preview of eternity, yet the valley is the here and now. It's the reality of the present. I want to read to you this account that transfiguration of Jesus Christ. I like to do it in full before we look at it in part. And I want to go back one verse into chapter 16. I want to begin at verse 28. Jesus speaks, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. 
And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then they understood that he was speaking about John the Baptist. Well, I want to begin with the first three verses. This is a breathtaking sight. It's our first point this morning, a view of the Christian life. It's a breathtaking sight. Three disciples apprehend the glory of the Lord. And by glory, I mean they saw his magnificence, or they saw the beauty of Jesus. Now, notice this morning that our account begins in chapter 17. But recall, we began reading in chapter 16. We started with verse 28. This, I believe, is one of those places in the Bible where the chapter and the verse numbers are not particularly helpful. That's not to disparage them. It's hard to imagine having a Bible without chapter and verse numbers. We're thankful for them, but also recognize that they were not part of the original inspired text. Throughout church history, a few men from time to time have helped advance this by inserting chapter and verse numbers. Most notable was a man named Stephanus in 1555, the story goes that he was completing his work, inserting these chapter and verse numbers while he rode his horse. I think that explains the awkward division we have this morning. He must have hit a bump between verse 28 and verse 1. My point is that verse 28 goes with verse 1. Jesus announced some will not die before they see Jesus coming in his kingdom. Peter, James, and John were going to see Jesus in a way that no one else had, at least during his earthly ministry. I believe then that verse 28 flows right into verse 1. Now, to be fair, there's different views about verse 28. Some people believe Jesus is referring here to, to his resurrection some believe he refers to the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. Others believe that this is a prediction of the fall of Jerusalem or the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. 
But looking at the context, I think it's, it's right to see the fulfillment of verse 28, quote, six days later. And this is where Matthew picks up. It's verse 1 of chapter 17. Three disciples will not die before witnessing a powerful display of God's glory. Jesus takes James and John and Peter high atop a mountain. These three we might call the inner circle of Jesus. When Jesus healed the daughter of a man named Jairus, he took along with him only Peter, James, and John. When Jesus goes further into the garden on the night of his arrest, he takes with him Peter, James, and John. Now, we don't know what it is about these guys that put them on the Lord's radar. We don't know why he invested more intently in them. Based upon what we know about the human condition, there probably wasn't anything particularly attractive about them. It's his own sovereign choice. But no matter where you and I are in our knowledge or in our giftedness or in our faith, wherever we are with that, we're just to be good stewards of what God's given us. When Peter, James, and John, for example, they would go on to be critical, yet imperfect leaders of the early church, just to be good stewards of what Jesus invested. Well, our passage this morning locates these guys atop a high mountain. They're alone up there. We see they're a party of four, at least for now. I imagine it was probably a spectacular view from where they stood, maybe a bit windy if you've ever been up high on a mountain. We're not sure if it's daytime or nighttime. The Bible doesn't tell us. We might recall that God often meets his men atop a mountain. It was on the mountain that he disclosed himself to a man named Moses. It was atop a mountain that he ministered to a man named Elijah. And Jesus now continues that pattern. The Gospel of Luke also records this event. While Jesus was praying, quote, the appearance of his face became different. Our passage in Matthew says he was transfigured. To be transfigured means to change in appearance. The Greek word is metamorpho. Metamorpho. You might know that word in English, metamorphosis. We pull our English word over from that word. In the realm of nature, for example, the caterpillar will cocoon itself and come out as a butterfly. We call that a metamorphosis. There's a change that takes place. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the same word is used. It speaks, for example, of a change in the life of the Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That means God sanctifies us. That means that over time, you and I become more and more like Christ. Another popular passage would be Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind. Here, Paul writes of the source for personal holiness. It begins with the mind. As we renew our minds, we become less like the world. Well, it's that kind of change that the author has in mind. It's a transfiguration or a change in the appearance of Jesus. He himself did not change, but his appearance did. He's changed from an earthly appearance to a heavenly appearance. Luke says that the appearance of his face became different. Mark writes his garments became radiant. They were exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Here's Jesus shining and dazzling. His face shone like the sun. This is Jesus as he truly is, by the way. He is the divine Son of God. Charles Spurgeon writes that this was not a new miracle, but the temporary pause of an ongoing miracle. The real miracle was that Jesus, most of the time, could keep from displaying his glory. This is the normal appearance of Jesus, fully God, from all eternity. It's amazing that he came down and took on the human body, flesh. For you and I, we might have modern depictions of Jesus in our homes. Maybe he's a baby lying in a manger in a nativity scene, or there's a framed portrait of his bust hanging on the wall, or even hanging on a cross on the wall. But this, this is an otherworldly and unparalleled appearance of Jesus, and some might argue a more accurate one. Difficult to duplicate, to display in the living room. But more is happening here. Our party of four becomes a party of six. In verse 2, Moses and Elisha appear. This event has gone from unprecedented to now unreal. Moses arrives. He's the great leader of God's people. This is the man who led that exodus out of Egypt and Egyptian slavery. God revealed his law through Moses. Elijah arrives. He fought against the idolatry of Israel. God validated his preaching with miracles. I call this a visual theology. What do I mean by that? Well, Peter, James, and John can literally see the theology of the Bible coming true before their eyes. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. The Old Testament The revelation of God thus far in human history is the law and the prophets, and they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, we heard Jesus preach that on the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And here's a vivid display of that. It's a theological truth that's taking place before their eyes. What a breathtaking sight this must have been. What a mountaintop experience. This had such an impact on Peter, he would later write about it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. 
when we were with him on the holy mountain. I hope you have similar experiences with your Lord. Not that Jesus appears to you in in bright glory, or you're startled in the middle of the night by Elijah and Moses appearing at the feet of your bed, but that you live in a relationship with Jesus that is just as real That the same reality of these disciples atop that mountain with Jesus is the same reality for you and your walk with him day in and day out. That you in this relationship with Jesus get a taste of what is to come. From time to time, perhaps you're catching a vision of your home. It could be in the gathered body of Christ as we assemble here and worship him. Maybe it's in the quiet of, of your devotional time. Maybe it's in in some kind of relationship or exchange and fellowship with another believer. I hope you receive just a taste of this, this mountaintop experience from from time to time in your Christian life. The feeling is great. We find hope and we find joy from the indwelling spirit as he works and he affirms and he confirms our faith. May we relish those moments as Christ shows us something of himself. Because to behold him atop the mountain is just that. It is a a beautiful appearance. Secondly, there's something else happening here. There's something else to yet view. Verses 5 through 8, there is a fearful perception. There's a fearful perception. The beauty of God, it evokes a fearful response. Luke chapter 9 verse 32 tells us, that Peter, James, and John had fallen asleep. And when they awoke, they witnessed Jesus standing there with Moses and Elijah, and they're conversing. Luke tells us they were discussing the departure of Jesus when he was going to go to Jerusalem. And when I speak of fear this morning, when I speak of the fear of God, I'm speaking of a, of a reverent awe or a respect a profound respect for God. This is the normal reaction to God. If you can recall, Moses journeying along, he sees that bush that's on fire. It's on fire, yet it's not consumed. He's curious. He says, I must see this marvelous sight. And he stops. He visits it. But then God speaks. And he hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Ezekiel, similar experience. Ezekiel fell on his face. Isaiah declares, woe is me, for I am ruined. Daniel says, my spirit was distressed within me. When John, the same disciple atop the mountain with Jesus, the same disciple who would pen the book of Revelation, when he describes the Jesus in Revelation 1, the Jesus he encounters in a vision, he writes, I fell like a dead man at his feet. I believe in Sunday school I shared the story of the man who came to his pastor and told him of the voice of God. He was shaving And God spoke to him. And the pastor asked him, did you keep shaving? 
In other words, an encounter with the living God, it shakes the soul. It does something to the person. It produces a fear or a reverential awe. And for Peter, Peter has an idea. Peter wants to build tabernacles. Every year, the Feast of Tabernacles is celebrated by the Jewish people. It's to to commemorate the Exodus event, to celebrate the harvest. And Peter wants them to stay. He wants Elijah and and Moses and Jesus. He wants to, to capture this moment. He wants to camp out on the mountain. Mark tells us why he did this, quote, because he did not know what to say, because he was terrified. And if at this point we could measure the fear of God in these men with a thermometer, it's looking awfully red. And that red in that thermometer is about to break. Because in verse 5, while he's still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice speaks, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The cloud is representing the glory of God. It's called the, the Shekinah glory, as one commentator says. Shekinah simply means presence, the presence of God. Shekinah glory was a striking phenomenon. One commentator notes it's referred to 58 times in the Bible in at least 10 different books. And the cloud represents the awesome presence of God. This cloud comes around them. It surrounds them. It envelops them. And God's voice booms. It's the same approval, by the way, Jesus received at baptism. It's almost word for word. Remember that event earlier in the Gospel of Matthew? Jesus comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And God speaks from heaven. What did he say back there? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you hear the difference between what he said then and what he says now? It's the last three words. Listen to him. God speaks to disciples of Jesus. And he speaks to them audibly and clearly and specifically. And he speaks a command that goes beyond the ears. This is about obedience. If you've ever raised children, you understand what he's up to. A mom may well ask her child, did you listen to me? She's not asking if the auditory canal in the inner ear passed her message along to the brain. She wants to know if the child obeyed. To listen is to obey. To listen is to obey what the Bible commands. This word, obedience, gets lost in contemporary Christianity in her glossary. But I can assure you that God cares deeply about our obedience. 1 Samuel chapter 15, for example, God sends Samuel to King Saul. Verse 1, listen to the words of the Lord. 
God commands him to go and destroy the Amalekites. When he does this, he is to spare no one. He is to spare nothing. And Saul attains a smashing victory. Samuel then travels to meet Saul. And as he draws closer to Saul, as he nears the camp, he hears a most disturbing sound. Quote, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul replies, I spared the best sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. What's the problem? He did not obey. He did not listen. And Samuel speaks to Saul. He says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. God wants our obedience to his word. Not kind thoughts, not good intentions, not shortcuts. What are we to obey? Well, we know we are to obey the entire word. We ought to obey the Bible, the commands of the Bible. But I think there's some more to it than that as we get into the context. I think we can draw some clear applications from this text as well as some implications. Do not be afraid. It's interesting, after God gives that command, this is the first command Jesus then gives. Listen to Jesus. What does he say? Do not be afraid. Jesus here is speaking of a, of a different fear. Jesus often comes to his people this way. He comes to them to comfort them. Do not be afraid. Do not be scared of God. This is a message for God's people. Fear God, yes. Have a reverent respect for him. Live in awe of him, but remember that you are forgiven. Do not be scared of God. You're his child. He's your father. There's no cause for, for fear in terms of being afraid, in terms of being scared. Your faith in Jesus has made God your loving father, and Jesus comes and says, don't be scared of him. Don't be afraid that way. In verse 9, Jesus commands the disciples to tell no one what they witnessed, at least for the time being. That might be another command, listen to him. Luke tells us that they did this. They did this successfully. And then zooming out in the context, I think there's a few implications. There's some things implied. This passage is saturated with the themes of suffering and risk. Going back into chapter 16, Remember, I mentioned this a bit ago, some people see Peter's offer to, to build these tents or these tabernacles. They see that as, as an attempt to distract Jesus or a potential distraction. They're not up on top of the mountain to make camp or to try to, to forever uh, chisel this moment into some kind of enduring activity that goes on and on. They're not trying to reserve the campsite for a month. Peter wants Jesus, Moses, and Elijah to set up shop, to remain upon the mountain. But, but we know that Jesus is on a mission. We know that Jesus does not want to be deterred. 
Remember, going back to chapter 16, verse 23, this is the, the issue he had with Peter. What does he say? Get behind me, Satan. That's his reaction to distraction from suffering. And his disciples, well, they're going to walk the same road, or a very similar road. And, and again, going back to verse 24, our message from last week, a threefold command, if you, if you want to be his disciple, listen to him and deny yourself and suffer and, and follow him. You see, obedience and fear, these two are, are working together. Those who fear the Lord, those who have a reverential respect for God, they can obey God. Those who don't can't obey God. It's very difficult to obey God. This transfiguration, it was certainly a breathtaking sight for the disciples, but it was also a very fearful perception to to hear the voice of God, to see Jesus in his radiance, It's a glimpse into the power and the might of God, and that ought to spur us on to obedience. Well, lastly, a third and final view of the Christian life, there's there's a strenuous outlook. A strenuous outlook. Again, the theme of of suffering and hardship, they, they drift through this passage. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 13. No doubt for them, that view from the mountain that day, it was amazing. But now, it's time to come back down. Back to reality and and the suffering that's bound up in the reality of earthly living. Well, in verse 9, Jesus mentions to them that the Son of Man will rise from the dead. Okay, that's a significant statement. In my mind, this is a conversation stopper. Jesus, the Son of Man, speaks of his death. But what do the disciples do after this? What do they do in response to this? They start talking about Elijah. What? This is like you and I meeting in the foyer before the service And I tell you that I just got in a car accident down the street. And I smell like smoke because I barely escaped the fiery explosion that consumed my vehicle in a fiery ball of orange flame. And your response is, what kind of mileage did you get on that car? (laughs) It feels like the same thing's happening here. Like there's this huge event that's spoken of, and they're off on some fringe issue. Talking about Elijah. Well, stepping outside of Matthew, we can fill in what's happening. The Gospel of Mark helps us understand. Mark records that when Jesus spoke of his death, the disciples began talking about what he meant by that. What did it mean to to rise from the dead? And remember where they're coming from. They were just atop the mountain, and and there they, they saw Elijah. So, so Jesus will rise from the dead. Elijah did not appear dead, and they knew the Old Testament at least enough to put all this together. If Jesus is the Messiah, why are the scribes preaching Elijah? Yeah, if Jesus is the Messiah, why are the scribes preaching Elijah must come? Now, the scribes knew their Old Testament. They were sharp. 
Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the final book of the Old Testament. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's spot on. A messenger is going to prepare the way of the Lord. One chapter later, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah is supposed to, become, be, supposed to come before the day of the Lord. And day of the Lord would just be a way of summarizing those final end times events, that great judgment of God that is to come. So the disciples seem to understand that Jesus is God's Messiah, so how's Elijah fit in? Well, Jesus replies. It's a three-part answer, verses 12 and 13. Elijah does come. The scripture is fact. The scripture is true. More than that, Jesus affirmed that Elijah has come. He stated it previously. Back in Matthew chapter 11, he said, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is the Elijah who was to come. In other words, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophecy. And John the Baptist did indeed come before the Lord. Verse 11 contains a possible future allusion. It sounds like there is still a role for Elijah yet to come. That there might be some kind of yet unfulfilled prophecy some role in the series of end times events that are yet to unfold. But in verse 12, Israel did not recognize him. And generally speaking, Jesus is saying that that his ministry, John's ministry, it, it went unheeded. And that eventually John was killed and that eventually Jesus would suffer the same fate. What's the point? Well, this is a strenuous outlook to come down the mountain after that and to come down to realities like this, that life is filled with suffering and hardship and risk. It was Oswald Chambers who says, quote, the test of our spiritual life is the power to descend. Our lives are not spent standing on mountaintop experiences. And I think that's a good reminder for the Christian life that we should not be too surprised or too shaken when we suffer, when we endure trial or experience persecution. Maybe we should be surprised that it doesn't happen more often. Peter, again, would go on to write in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery deal or deal among you. It comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you might rejoice with exaltation. If we are to live for Christ, if we are to deny ourselves, if we are to take up our crosses, if we are to follow him, if we are to do these things, much of life is a valley. Much of life is a valley. But we pass through the valley now. And that we live on the mountain forever. With the glory of the Lord that we saw this morning. In fact, today's passage has given us three views for this Christian life. 
We've seen the Lord, this foretaste of heaven atop the mountain. It's the beauty of a glorified Christ. There's also a great reminder this morning to to revere him, to fear God, a respectful reverence. And then there's a reminder that we will suffer on the journey. To be a Christian is, is to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Though we will travel through some disturbingly dark valleys, and there'll be pain, they'll be deep and long and hard. What Peter and James and John witnessed, what they saw with Jesus, one day you and I will see as well. And as Peter has written, to the degree that you feel the pain and to the degree that you carry the weight, It is to that degree that you will one day also be free of it, to rejoice atop the mountain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you walked a hard road. And you can identify with our difficulties and our pain and our suffering. Thank you for the glimpses of home that you give us. We pray for more. I pray for every believer today, Father, that you would give them greater, fuller, stronger glimpses of eternity and that they would be encouraged, that they would take heart. But I pray also, realizing your plan for us, your will, it involves suffering and valleys. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would give us grace and give us strength And give us a spirit of perseverance to walk those valleys and to walk them with you, to walk them as you walk them. Oh, Lord, we love you and we're thankful for for your presence on this journey. We long to see you one day soon. It's in your name we pray. Amen.